All right, I know the time is short and I want to respect that as best I can. And, uh, but I have something to say to you this morning. I hope everybody will listen carefully, stay in your place until we dismiss the service. That's always a help. Um, for certain specific reasons, the pulpit schedule was adjusted the last two to three weeks, which means this is the first time that I have been able to address you from the pulpit in the new year. I want to talk to us for the next few minutes about where we really are as a fellowship and hopefully give us a distinctive word for this year. We've just come through the Christmas season where we boldly proclaim that God is Emmanuel, which means what? God is with us. And so my message to you this morning is very, is, uh, is very simple and you will notice my tribute to my predecessor in it, it is this. God is with us, so come on, Bethesda, let's do it. We, we cannot deny <clears throat> that we have been in a rather extended, um, extended season of change here. We've seen change in the leadership of our school. We've just gone through the passing of our beloved patriarch. We're watching as God is uh, enlarging our borders with the addition of six congregations and con conducting services in their own respective languages and cultures. We're seeing people come to Christ uh, through, uh, through the various ministries of this fellowship, and it is so wonderful to see that. Oh, what a blessing it has been, particularly the last quarter of the year. And yet here we stand at the front of a new year and a new decade. And the word we've, we have received from the Lord to help guide us for 2020 is what? More and more. We talked about it at length last week. But essentially, in case you missed it, we're asking the Lord for more from him, more through him to others, and to be able to give more to him. We do want more of his glory and grace and his presence and power from him. We are certainly looking for those things from him. But when we say more and more, we're talking about more than that. We're also saying, Lord, we want to demonstrate more love and kindness and generosity and compassion through you to others. We're also saying, Lord, and then when we talk about to him, more praise, more worship, more submission, more obedience to him. So can the church say amen to that this morning? But because we're human, we can easily fall back into routine, complacency, being satisfied with status quo. We can easily fall back into apathy or even just the exhaustion that we feel, whether that's body, mind, or spirit. We can also easily fall back into a sense of boredom with what's going on or even being disgruntled with yourself or others or even the church. It's easy for that to happen in our humanness. So regardless where you find yourself this morning, on the continuum from energized to exasperated, from full to empty, from excited to bored, as your pastor this morning, I'm going to take advantage of this, my first opportunity to speak to you in the new year, to sound a clarion call by asking you this, Bethesda, who is on the Lord's side? Two of us. Bethesda, who is on the Lord's side this morning? Who will serve the king? 
Please turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 1. I'm going to ask you to listen very, very carefully to the text. Ezra chapter 1. Now, instead of trying to pretend that you know where the book of Ezra is, I'm going to give you a free pass to go ahead and go to the index at the front and see what page number it is in your Bible, and no one's going to judge you for it today. If it helps you, it's between 2 Chronicles and Nehemiah, okay? Ezra chapter 1. And it goes like this. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, please listen carefully. The Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He, the Lord, stirred the heart of Cyrus. Now, let me interrupt that very quickly only to say he's a Medo-Persian king. He's not a partaker of the Jewish religion. He is not part of the people of God at all. And yet what we see is the Lord stirred the heart of King Cyrus. How many of you know the Lord has, has access to anyone's heart? He can turn the heart of kings. He can turn the heart of presidents. He can turn the heart of prime ministers. Whatever he wishes to do because he's the Lord God Almighty and he can do that. So the Lord stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. And he said this, this, the proclamation, this is what King Cyrus of Persia says, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Now, any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord. The God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem, and may your God be with you. Wherever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for the journey, and livestock, as well as what we would call free will offerings or, or love offerings, voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then God stirred the hearts of the priests and Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And all their neighbors assisted by giving them articles of silver and gold, supplies for the journey and livestock. They gave them many valuable gifts in addition to all the voluntary offerings. King Cyrus himself brought out the articles that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Lord's temple in Jerusalem and had placed them in the temple of his own gods. Cyrus directed Mithridath, the treasurer of Persia, to count these items and present them to Sheshbazar, the leader of the exiles returning to Judah. He was the guy in charge of, of the return. This is a list of the items that were returned. Gold basins, there's 30 of those. Silver basins, 1,000. Silver incense burners, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Silver bowls, 410. And other items, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Sheshbazar brought all of these along when the exiles went from Babylon to Jerusalem. I hope you're listening. Here is the list of the Jewish exiles of the provinces who returned from their captivity. 
King Nebuchadnezzar had deported them to Babylon, but now they returned to Jerusalem and the other towns in Judah where they originally lived. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his most holy and infallible word And the church said. Give me just a moment to set the scene historically for this particular moment of history. The people of God have been called of God to be a blessing in the earth. They've been called to a specific place on the earth, the nation that we now call Israel, to a particular city, Jerusalem. For in this place, the glory of God dwelt in this temple. We know these things from Scripture. The people of God were to be a special people, empowered by God, gifted by God, touched by God, changed by God. They were given giftings and abilities that only God could give them. Their lives were to be a testimony of God in the earth. And actually, Bethesda, that is the same calling that is on your life and on mine as part of the living church of the Lord Jesus Christ to our day and generation. But here was the issue. The people of that time dealt very casually with their calling. They didn't really take it all that seriously. They began to do other things and the service of worship to God became a matter of just convenience for them. Their worship and their temple attendance began to take on forms that God never intended for them to take. And the purpose that God had ordained for them as the people of God, hear me, the purpose that God had ordained for them like sand just slipped through their fingers and fell, as it were, to the ground. Suddenly they found themselves powerless and as an enemy surrounded them called Babylon. Babylon in three stages took captive the people of God and brought them into a foreign land for 70 years. 70 years they were in captivity. 70 years they were in a place that they were, should not have been. But you know what? It can happen. It can happen to believers. It can happen to a local fellowship. It can happen to families. We end up in a place where we are not destined to be. And it was not God's plan nor his purpose. It was a time of chastening. It was a time possibly of reconsidering what their actual calling was supposed to have been in the earth. But then, in the midst of all of this, suddenly, say the word suddenly. You got any more passion for it? Suddenly revival comes. Now, revival is a word that can easily stir up a profound emotion in the hearts and minds of many of us seasoned people here this morning, particularly when you have witnessed and been a part of a profound move of God, as this particular fellowship enjoyed and experienced many decades ago. But I also know it can conjure up images of accordions and tambourines and Jericho marches and services every night of the week and lots of hellfire and brimstone sermons. Do I have a witness in the house today? So let me define revival correctly for you today. It is important for us to always understand that revival is God's initiative not man's initiative. 
Revival is God's initiative. Now, it is not unusual for me to have a, a, a good old timer here come up and say to me, Dan, what we need in this church is a good old-fashioned revival. And I might say, yes, I, I agree. And then they might follow up and say, so what are you going to do about it? And my answer is nothing except cry out to God. That's the only thing that we can do. No pastor, no church board, no committee can make a revival happen in a church. Because revival is whose initiative? It's something that God determines in his heart to do. And in this situation, he had already predetermined that he would allow the enemies of God's people to captivate them for 70 years. And he had already spoken through the mouth of Daniel the prophet at the time when they were taken into captivity that at the end of 70 years, God would visit them and bring them home to Jerusalem. So therefore, revival is God saying, the enemy has had my people in his grip long enough and I'm ready to bring them home. That's what revival is. And we see that God stirs the heart of a king who was not even a part of the people of God. It was God who stirred his heart to let the people go home. Excuse me. God who stirred his heart to let the people go home. To allow them to rebuild the testimony or the purpose that had slipped through their fingers in their generation. They were given a chance to rebuild it. A revival, though it is God's initiative, it is most often the response to a cry in the hearts of some of God's people. The reason I say some is because there are many, there were then and there are today, who can become quite content and feel no need for revival at all. We see this happening in the church today. For whatever reason, people can lose their hunger and their desire for more and more of God. They just, they lose their purpose. And others simply reach the point, sadly, where they, they just no longer care. Or they're content with simply where, they're, where they are. But I'm here to say this this morning. There is always that voice. There's always that person who may not even be a public figure or may not even be a person on the platform. There's always that person. It can be simply a person like you or me just in our own house or your own apartment. It is that person with a sigh in their heart, with a cry in their heart that says this, God, it's not right. The way things are today, it's not right. It's not right the way your people are being treated. It's not right the way your people are acting and behaving. It's not right, God. It's not right the way you're being treated in the earth today or that you're not even known among men in many places of this earth today, even in the United States of America. It's that person with a cry in their heart that says, God, when I look around, all around me, my place of business, and even among some of my friends, you're not being revered. You're not being loved. You're not being honored. Your word is being cast into the streets as if it's something even evil. This is not right. And that's what's in the cry in the, of the heart of a person who's ready to call out for revival. It's that person who raises a voice like we see in Habakkuk chapter 3. 
where we see this. I have heard all about you, Lord. I am filled with awe by your amazing works. But in this time of our deep need, help us, help us again as you did in years gone by. But oh, in your anger, remember your mercy. Oh God, when I think of what this nation could be, oh God, when I think of what your church could be, if people's hearts would open again to who you are and why you went to a cross and what eternity, the reality of eternity could look like, lest we ever lose sight of the fact that there is still a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. Let there arise within us a voice which cries out for spiritual awakening like we've never seen before. Revival, spiritual awakening, comes suddenly. It is not anticipated. It is almost always, at least every expression of revival I've ever seen, it is unusual. And it begs a response. And it comes when we least expect it. In fact, when you look at church history, you'll find quite often that spiritual awakening tends to come at a time in a when a country seems to be at its worst or uh, behavior is at its worst. When you think or know anything about or study the great revivals which took place in Great Britain, history will show that those revivals came at a time when people were drunk and fornicating in the streets and all throughout the cities. It was said of that time that the moral temperature could not have gone any lower, but suddenly, say it, Suddenly, oh my goodness, who has a cry in your heart for more and more in this house this morning? When suddenly, the Spirit of God starts to move among the people. Something begins to happen. It's initiated by God and not by man. It is sudden because, suddenly because it is not the work of man. It's not something because a committee gets together and decides that they're going to do this event or that event or, or no, that's, that's human effort trying to procure revival. Now, please don't understand me. I'm completely for, all for anything that spreads the gospel of Jesus. But true spiritual awakening is, awakening is God-initiated and not man-initiated. And it does not require a plan on our part, but it does require a response. Now, just imagine if you had been there. I hope you were listening to the reading of our text, and I'll review a couple of the verses in a moment. Imagine if you had been there in Ezra chapter 1, when God stirred the heart of King Cyrus to put out the proclamation. King Cyrus, yeah, that's the same guy who behaved in a very ungodly way. It's the same king who captivated you and your people. That's him. It's the same king who had gloated, oh, you're the people of God, are you? Okay, yeah. And suddenly, through him, the news comes that this king had issued a decree that the God that he does not serve has ordered him to build a house in Jerusalem. So what we see in verse 3, basically he's saying this. Who of you belong to the Lord? Who is on the Lord's side? Who is part here, who here is part of God's grand design in the earth? Who desires to live a life that brings glory to his name? Who, uh, is that anybody here he's basically saying? Who is concerned about the honor of God? Who here wants their life 
to be what God has destined it to be. Who is left? Is there anyone left of the people of God? Don't forget, it had been 70 years of captivity. Is there anybody left who has any desire in that way at all? Let me review verse 3 of Ezra 1. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem and Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you. So this call, this cry, this proclamation goes out. The rebuilding has started, which means God is on the move again. God is going to do for his people and through his people. Bless the name of Jesus. Oh, my goodness. Mm. God is going to do for his people and through his people what only God can do. So that king is saying, so who belongs to him? And who is even concerned that he has asked us to regain that which was lost through our negligence? Who even cares about that? Verse 4, wherever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies, livestock, as well as offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. You know what? Listen to me. Listen, listen. You know what Cyrus is saying here? If there are people who can't go, for whatever reason, you're too old, you're too sick, you're, you can't make the journey, whatever, it still remains, according to what this king was proclaiming, it still remains that everybody should do at least something. No one is exempt. No one is. This non-believing king says, everybody needs to do something in the rebuilding of the testimony of the glory of God in the earth. All of the people of God need to be involved in that. No one is excluded. But there's more. Verse 7. King Cyrus himself brought out the articles that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Lord's temple in Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his own gods. In other words, everything that God had given the pattern to King David, who had passed it to his son Solomon, who had fashioned all these instruments that were necessary for the sacrifices that would go on in the temple. Instruments that were necessary in the worship of God and in the cleansing of God's people. King Cyrus had them brought out from where Nebuchadnezzar had placed them in his temple of his gods. Now, are, are you putting yourself in that setting with me this morning? Because the people would have assumed that all of those articles, we, we, we read them a while ago, and there was a total of 5,400. People would have assumed that they had been lost. They've not seen them in 70 years. And, and, the, and the devil would love for, him, for them to have believed that they were lost so that they could never be regained. But contrary to that, you see, I want to declare to you this morning, nothing, nothing of God is ever lost. Hear it. Nothing of God is there. Of God is ever lost. It may be in storage. But it's not lost. The numbers of them are counted. 5,400 instruments necessary in the worship of God in the temple. Can you imagine standing there amongst the people 
as all of these things that you have treasured in your journey with God and your understanding of the temple. You see them all brought out of storage, one by one. Now the Babylonians, who have been conquered by the Medo-Persians, either one of those kingdoms could have melted the instruments down, could have made gold bars out of them, they could have made currency out of them, but that didn't happen. And do you wanna know why that didn't happen? Because our sovereign God is always in charge of everything. So what does that mean? You may say to me, Pastor Dan, where's the word of knowledge today? It's been in storage. Where are the gifts of healing that we talk about? They've been in storage. Where are all the prophets? They've been in storage. You see, nothing is lost. Nothing can be lost to the kingdom of God. But there are times and seasons, church, listen to me, throughout history where God says, bring out everything that was taken captive and give it back to the people of God. So where's the baptism in the Holy Spirit? Well, for some people, in some people's cases, it's been in storage. Is it lost? Uh-uh. But God says everything, everything, one at a time, is coming out of storage, and he declares, who wants to rebuild? Who wants to go home? Who wants to glorify God in the earth? Who wants to see captivity taken captive one more time in this generation? I would love to have been there for that moment. The psalmist wrote about that moment, and uh, psalm 126, one of the psalms Marty was referencing, talking about the psalms of ascent, 126 said this, when the Lord brought back his exiles to Jerusalem, it was like a dream. <laughs> we thought it was lost forever. We thought this dominant society, Babylon, the, the, uh, then Medo-Persia, who was conquering the whole world with its new philosophies and new ways of doing things and considering themselves superior to the ways of God, we thought our way of life would never return to us. But then suddenly, the gates opened. Suddenly, we realized the hand of God is moving again. Bless the Lord. And our captivity has indeed been taken captive. Verse two, we were filled with laughter and we sang for joy. And the other nation said, what amazing things the Lord has done for them. Yes, the Lord has done amazing things for us. What joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, as streams renew the desert. And those who plant or sow in tears will harvest or reap with shouts of joy. They weep as they go to plant their seed, but they sing as they return with the harvest. Blessed be the Lord. In other words... Our confidence in God, no matter where we are, no matter what kind of sorrow has hit your heart, 
no matter how poverty-stricken you may feel to do anything about the hour in which you live, if we have that cry in our heart that is reaching out to him, even if it's the cry of tears and sorrow for the loss of our family and friends, the psalmist says, you will come home and you will be rejoicing and you will bring a harvest with you and you will not come alone. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm really trying to finish here, folks. Stay with me, please. It gets really interesting to me right here. Ezra, as I just dip into the first verse of chapter two, here's the list of the Jewish exiles of the provinces who returned from their captivity. King Nebuchadnezzar had deported them to Babylon, but now they returned to Jerusalem and the other towns in Judah where they had originally lived. And for the remainder of the chapter, if you have your Bible or your device open, you will see a listing of many houses and families and people groups returning. Here's the list, such as, verse three, the family of Perosh, 2,172. Verse six, the family of Pehoth Moab, 2,812. The family of Benai, 642. Verse 14, the family of Bigvi, 2,056 returning with him. Verse 17, the family of Bezai, 323 went with him. Verse 18, the family of Jorah, 112. Verse 21, the people of Bethlehem, 123. Now, here's what I see in this. Not everyone is gonna get up and rebuild. But in every country, in every village, every little hamlet, every town, every city, every state, every place, there will be somebody who will get up. There'll be a somebody, say somebody. There will be somebody who will get up and say, I'll go, I'll rebuild the temple. Now if in the United States could have been written in here, I could see it going something like this. And from the state of Florida, 76,444 got up to go rebuild. From the state of New Jersey, 53,226 got up to build. From the state of California, maybe not. But from the great state of Texas, 32 million got up to go and rebuild. And not just states, but in little towns. 600 got up, 400 got up, 123 rose up of all denominations of all places. They were the people of God, they were the body of Christ because they had heard the decree of the king and the response came from their heart. God is with us, so let's do it. Therefore, I declare this morning, Bethesda, there is a proclamation to us in 2020 from our King, King Jesus, and it's this, God is with us. So let us rise and build the kingdom of God in our day and generation. Of the Methodists, seven million. 
of the Assemblies of God, 12 million, decided to rise and go. Of the Baptists, 23 million. Of this group, of that group, of that town, of this community. And now, it comes down to you. Blessed be the name of Jesus. May it be written in this moment of history of the family of Smith with two precious new granddaughters ushering in the next generation. 43 of us got up to build again the testimony of God. Of the family of Evans with their passion for missions, 56 got up to rebuild the temple. Of the family of Brunson, 39. Of the family of Geary, 67 of them. May it be said of us that we rose up to build the kingdom of God in this generation. May it be said of us that we were truly able to sing of freedom in our spirit, no more shackles of Babylon, no more chains, no more duplicity, no more compromise with sin, no more association with sin, no more bondage, no more wickedness before our eyes, no more crooked speech from our mouths because we're rising up. We're gonna build the testimony of God because God is with us, hallelujah. I said hallelujah. And in every one of these families listed in Ezra, somebody was the first to speak. Somebody stood up in the house. Somebody said, sweetheart, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing something. I don't, I don't know how to even talk to you about it. I'm hearing something in my heart. I'm hearing something inwardly. This is what was happening. God's calling us back to the place where we once were. God is calling us to a place where we worship him again in spirit and in truth. God is calling us to a place where we, as his people, bring glory and honor to his name by becoming a people that only God could design or fashion, by doing things that only God could do through us, by carrying in our possession only things that God could give to us. Somebody... Somebody, somebody was first. Today, Bethesda, somebody needs to be the first to stand and declare, I hear the proclamation of the king. I know that the call of God demands a response, and I want myself and my family to be part of rebuilding the testimony of God in the earth. I recognize that God is restoring to us all that we need to do the job well. It's coming out of storage, hallelujah, and I'm ready to see captivity taken captive in my lifetime for the glory of the name of Jesus, who is standing to be somebody this morning in this house. Bethesda, as we dedicate ourselves to more and more of him, we're going to discover a greater hunger for his word. If we don't read the word, we wouldn't even know it's a 70 year and we're at the end of it. You gotta know the word. That's why we're encouraging you, get in the book with us this week. Get in the book. We're gonna also discover as we, are, as we are dedicating ourselves to more and more of him, an insatiable desire for prayer. I'm going to be a person of prayer. I'm gonna give myself to prayer. And we're also gonna discover this, dear one. God has heard your cry. It may have been in the midnight hour, 
Single mom, he heard your cry of wondering how you're even going to keep your children living for God. He's heard your cry this morning. Be encouraged. Fathers, God has heard the cry of the father who feels like he doesn't even know how to be a dad, but he longs in his heart to do so. Dear one who's struggling with all kinds of stuff, God has heard the cry of the person who's sick and tired of living in clubs on Friday and Saturday night and getting to church Sunday morning to try to fix it all. And, and that, that duplicity is, is, is exhausting for you. God has heard the cry of the young person who says, I don't really understand what commitment is going to mean in my life, but oh God, I want to know, I want to know you, I want to know you. And I want to walk in your way and walk in your truth. God has heard the cry of his people. Therefore, church, it's time for us to rise and build. That's the call on his church. It's the call on our lives. So I say to us this morning, Bethesda, God is Emmanuel. God is with us. So come on, Bethesda. Let's do it for the glory of the name of Jesus.